This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. <laughs> Welcome to Libri Fellowship. Uh, my name is Ben Kais and I'll be speaking tonight. Um, there's so a few more lectures left in Labrie's uh, fall lecture schedule. Next week, Joshua Chestnut, same time, same place. Um, on uh, his, his title is On Being Politically Homeless. Uh, a very relevant topic for our time, obviously. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, just so you know, there are people in this room. There are, there are real, real people. Say hello, everybody. <laughs> um, we have some students in the house this term, and we're um, really enjoying that and feel, feel privileged to have people actually here in the room. For those of you who are out there, welcome. And uh, it's just strange to be talking into a computer screen, but, um, but good. I'm glad, that, I'm glad for the technology. Thank you to Dave, who's, who's uh, been helping us out. So uh, tonight my title is Making and Fixing in a World of Cheap Replaceable Objects. And uh, as I always say, uh, as a sort of disclaimer, we, ch- we choose our titles long, long, long before we finish writing our lectures. And so we very often have to kind of <clears throat> play fast and loose with our lectures and try to, try to make them roughly resemble the title that we sent out. But this, this one is pretty close, I think. Um, I want to start just with a very quick anecdote. Uh, a number of years ago, I was <clears throat> traveling with some friends. We're in a music group together, and we uh, were in North Carolina, and we decided to, to do a house show at some uh, the house of um, some friends of ours. They had a couple of young kids, and it was a chaotic day. We showed up late in the afternoon. There were multiple people coming and going. Uh, you know, dinner was being made. Things were getting set up for the house concert. Guests were coming into town. And meanwhile, the, the husband, our friend, was in the basement the whole time working on uh, his furnace that had shut down. You know, there was no no heat or no hot water or something. And he was in and out with, like, muddy boots and kind of, like, all throughout the whole afternoon. And I could tell that there was, I don't know, I've been married long enough to know that there's, there was probably some tension in the house <laughs> as a result of this, um, although they were very graceful. And by the end, by the end of the evening, when we were about to start our show, he finished, he fixed it, and it was up and running. And I just realized how it just felt really unusual to witness that, to witness somebody working on their own furnace, and then like finishing it, having it up and running. And um, there was a certain um, tenacity that my friend had that I that I don't, I don't see in many people. Um, so we're in a season of uh, just having looked at the news for the past few weeks. Obviously, COVID is continuing, uh, wildfires, hurricanes, and a, uh, a hotly contested election. Who in the world knows what will happen um, come November 4th? 
Um, it's understandable that many of us kind of teeter towards a sort of apocalyptic mindset. I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. You start to ask questions like, how well would I cope if there was no one to help me with a plumbing problem or a leak in the roof? Uh, what if there was nowhere to buy clothes? Uh, what if when a tool broke, I would have to fix it or go without? Uh, or if I needed a chair, what if it was up to me to make it? How would I fare if society and the economy basically collapsed? You know, pretty pretty badly in most areas, I would think. Uh, and while I know th- these kinds of meditations on the apocalypse um, are often alarmist and melodramatic and, and unproductive, for me, th- these kinds of questions don't go away. So uh, wouldn't it just be good, even in non-apocalyptic circumstances, to know how to do something practical around my house, uh, to rely on the skill of my own hands to actually meet my material needs and the people, the needs of those around me, uh, to cultivate a garden and, and grow it well, uh, to prep and cook a meal from scratch, to diagnose and repair a problem with my car or with my mower or something like that, uh, to build a new bookcase, to maybe make a dress for my daughter or something like that. <clears throat> I know many people who can do these things and, and much more difficult things. Uh, so these may sound uh, not so much like huge achievements to you, <clears throat> but if that's the case, it's because you're in the minority. <laughs> um, <clears throat> as a whole, people in our culture have become less able to do things like this than they were, say, 50 years ago. And this is a crisis of what Matthew Crawford calls decline in manual competence. Manual competence. And there are two questions I want to explore tonight. To what extent is the decline in manual competence really a problem? And then secondly, what might a Christian understanding of human beings bring to the conversation? So, presumably this will work. Um, amazing. <laughs> so this is my outline. So I'm going to start off really, uh, you'll, you'll soon discover this lecture is basically a glorified book report on Matthew Crawford's book. Um, and so the first section I just call a book recommendation. I'll just talk a little bit about this book, Shop Classes Soulcraft. Uh, second section I'll talk just a little bit, uh, not even a timeline or it's not at all a comprehensive history of of manual labor or anything. It's just a couple vignettes. And then uh, thirdly, dealing with this question, is this really a problem or is this just the way of the modern world? Is this what we should expect? And then lastly, a reflection on making, fixing, and human thriving, what that means. First of all, a, uh, a book recommendation. So this is Matthew Crawford. He wrote the book Shop Class as Soulcraft back in 2009. He's an interesting guy. He studied philosophy Worked for a number of years at a D.C. think tank. I don't even really know what that means, but it sounds very impressive. Um, he's also worked as an electrician as a young man and has owned his own mo- motorcycle shop. Uh, so the book Shop Class as Soulcraft is kind of a unique combination of, of social history, history of work, um, philosophy, and autobiography, uh, sort of drawing on his own experiences as a motorcycle mechanic. He's written several books since. I, uh, I'm ashamed I have not read them yet, but I, I'm <clears throat> looking forward to it. Um, I think his latest his latest book has something to do with car maintenance. 
So I'm just going to refer to this as shop class because it's easier than saying the, the full title. Uh, in shop class, he explores some of the historical reasons why manual competence has declined in our culture and what the implications are for our relationship to work and to leisure. <clears throat> and among many other things, he points to the advent of the assembly line in car manufacturing. This was something that uh, Henry Ford invented and was first put into practice in the Ford Motor Company. Uh, in Matthew Crawford's words, the assembly line systematically separated thinking from doing. And I'm sure there's examples of ways in which thinking and doing in, in the workplace had been separated before, but this was a, a real watershed moment in the history of work, manual work. Uh, and it introduced the separation of thinking and doing as the key to efficient mass production in other industries too. So assembly lines, obviously, now there's assembly lines for your phone, probably, or your vacuum cleaner, or everything. It's not just automobiles. But um, this idea of separating thinking from doing was seen as the key, it's sort of the key innovation in making mass production efficient. So, in other words, uh, Ford mechanics, who used to oversee the building of an entire automobile and had a holistic understanding of how all the parts fit together and work together, were now expected to perform one repetitive task on the line over and over and over and over. Mm. So the planning and the oversight of the finished product was a matter of upper management. The upper management would think through that and think of a scheme and plan out what the car would do and how it would work and everything like that. The the people on the floor on the assembly line weren't expected or allowed even to, to engage with the automobile on that level. So, in the name of efficiency, the mechanics were suddenly not expected to engage cognitively in their work. Uh, hence the separation of thinking and doing. Evidently, when the assembly line was first introduced, most of the mechanics walked out. Because they were aware, and they felt rightly, that their work had been seriously degraded. Right? Um, so Ford's, this is one example, there's many, many things that contributed to, to where we are today, but Ford's innovation played a part in a broader disparagement of the manual trades that came later. And so Matthew Crawford points to that, among many other things. Uh, manual work increasingly was viewed as being both mindless and unsatisfying, and increasingly it was mindless and unsatisfying. Uh, clearly not suitable work for young, bright people to consider. Crawford notes that one of the consequences of this is that in the last 20 years, shop class has been cut from school curriculums all over the country. It used to be an ordinary part of public public education, uh, having shop class, whether it's a uh, wood shop or metalworking or any kind of, of, of shop that's, t that's teaching young people to, to make things with their hands. Um, it seems to be one of the things that's first to get cut when there's budget problems and whatever. <clears throat> Uh, schools do not seem to consider it necessary or beneficial um, for students to learn manual skills. They want to be preparing students for, quote-unquote, better work, more mentally-oriented work. Uh, I'll say more about this later. <clears throat> so uh, this is, you'll notice I quote this book quite a lot at length. One of the reasons is uh, he's a very good writer. I find him to be a very, very good writer and uh, a joy to read. So just... 
don't feel you have to actually read all the words on the screen. There's, there's going to be a lot of them. Just if you want to sit back and just soak in them, that's fine too. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, Crawford writes this. Today in our schools, the manual trades are given little honor. The egalitarian worry that has always attended tracking students into college prep and vocational ed is overlaid with another, the fear that acquiring a specific skill set means that one's life is determined. In college, by contrast, many students don't learn anything of particular application. College is the ticket to an open future. Craftsmanship entails learning to do one thing really well, while the ideal of the new economy is to be able to learn new things, celebrating potential rather than achievement. Somehow, every worker in the cutting-age workplace is now... Just give a holler if I forget to do that again. Somehow, every worker in the cutting-edge workplace is now supposed to act like the entrepreneur, that is, to be actively involved in the continuous redefinition of his own job. Shop class presents an image of stasis that runs directly counter to what Senate, he's quoting another guy, uh, Senate identifies as, quote, a key element in the new economy's idealized self, the capacity to surrender, to give up possession of an established reality. This stance toward established reality, which can only be described as psychedelic, is best not indulged around a table saw. (laughs) And yet, uh, Crawford points out, it is simply not the case that manual work is static, mentally unchallenging, and unsatisfying. Um, There are assumptions being made that he says are based on really false ideas. So in his jobs as an electrician and as a motorcycle mechanic, he's found work to be, and I'll just list a couple things that explain what he, he talks about these a lot throughout the book, cognitively rich and at times very mentally demanding. And this is not because he is stupid, obviously. Uh, it's because a lot of manual work is cognitively demanding. Uh, to diagnose and to fix an ailing motorcycle engine required him to draw on a wealth of knowledge and experience Uh, He had to learn to really, really observe what was in front of him, to use all his senses, to listen, to smell, to touch, to see, um, and attend to every detail, to draw inferences, to form theories and test them, to even diagnose what's wrong with with a car or or a motorcycle, even before you come up with a solution for the problem. And so it's actually quite, quite rich cognitively. Ironically, he says he sometimes felt like he did less thinking when he worked for the think tank in D.C., he also found his manual work to be psychologically satisfying because it dealt with tangible realities that everybody could see including himself so his success or failure at a job could be immediately recognized there's something closer to an objective standard of excellence than he experienced in other jobs where your sort of performance is you know evaluations of your performance is really amorphous you know um so, uh, the, you know, the motorcycle either runs or it doesn't. And immediately you know whether you've succeeded or not. And this gave him a deep sense of pleasure and accomplishment. Uh, he also talks about other satisfactions connected with the social currency, connected with being a good motorcycle mechanic. And you run into, like, one of your customers at the bar, and he's like, yeah, he's the guy that fixed my bike. 
and you know it's nice to go out with your wife and have be recognized by everyone at the bar. It's awesome, right? So there's there's a there's a community aspect to to his competence that was really uh, that he I think he experienced as really beautiful and good. Uh, and then the the small detail that uh, working in the in manual trades very often you're working uh, in industries that are not easily outsourced. It's actually you know to be a plumber today is um, whether it, you know not everybody is made to be a plumber, but it is job security. <laughs> Always will have work. Always, and you can charge a lot of money for it too. And so the whole idea that this association of manual labor with sort of low-wage, blue-collar uh, work is just not doesn't really bear out in, in reality. Uh, you know that if you if you try to call a plumber and, and any plumber you call, they they're, they usually give you about a week before they can show up it's because there's not a lot of good plumbers in this world. <laughs> uh, we just we have personal experience with this just the last week, so it's been a um, this is pretty close to home for some of us in this room. <laughs> <clears throat> so even as consumers, even as people that buy things and have things, Crawford says there's something deeply human and therefore deeply fulfilling about having agency in the world of physical things, to be, to be masters of one's own stuff, he said. Um, when we do this, we're getting a handle on the real world outside our heads, which to him has real moral significance. So... The other side of that coin is that there's something sad and degrading about being alienated from your own stuff and not understanding the first thing about all, all the things you have and depend on. Uh, essentially ignorant as to how it all works and therefore helpless when it stops working. <laughs> there's something, uh, I mean, obviously some of that is inevitable in the, in the world today. Not all of us can understand how our cell phones, maybe very few of us understand how our cell phones work. Uh, but uh, that as an overall theme in our lives is not, is not maybe a good thing to embrace. <clears throat> Another quote from Crawford. This is very small, sorry. <clears throat> he's in this passage. He's comparing the narcissist versus the repairman. <laughs> the moral significance of work that grapples with material things may lie in the simple fact that such things lie outside the self. A washing machine, for example, surely exists to serve our needs, but in contending with one that is broken, you have to ask what it needs. At such a moment, technology is no longer a means by which our mastery of the world is extended, but an affront to our usual self-absorption. Constantly seeking self-affirmation, the narcissist views everything as an extension of his will, and therefore has only a tenuous grasp on the world of objects as something independent. He is prone to magical thinking and delusions of omnipotence. A repairman, on the other hand, puts himself in the service of others and fixes the things that they depend on. His relationship to objects enacts a more solid sort of command, based on real understanding. For this reason, his work also chastens the easy fantasy of mastery that permeates modern culture. The repairman has to begin each job by getting outside his own head and noticing things. For this very reason, the repairman's presence may make the narcissist uncomfortable. <laughs> the problem isn't so much that he's dirty or uncouth. Rather, he seems to pose a challenge to our self-understanding that, that, that is somehow fundamental. We're not as free and independent as we thought. 
So he's basically saying that uh, as we depend on all of the, the gadgets and objects of life that we don't understand, it's very easy to become um, to, to, to develop magical thinking. In other words, all this stuff just works for me. I don't, I don't understand how it works. It just it just does, uh, and that enables us to, to to develop, in a sense, a narcissistic attitude towards you know basically everything around me is an extension of my will when it works, right? But then suddenly, when something something breaks. And I have no idea what to do. I have to call on somebody else who actually really understands something about the physical world that I do not. And that throws me into a tailspin because it makes me realize, oh my gosh, I'm actually just dependent. I'm not really uh, omnipotent like my gadgets sometimes make me feel, right? So I find that very perceptive. And I like, you know... So because he's a philosopher, Matthew Crawford keeps on sort of bumping up against um, the question of human meaning and purpose. Uh, which I consider to be a really a, a theological question. What do people need to thrive? And what does that indicate about what people are for? How are people supposed to interact with the world around them? And these are questions that he, like I said, bumps up against. <laughs> and I want to applaud really most of the things that he says in this book. I highly recommend this book. Um, I agree that working with your hands and achieving a level of competence is more important than we often think today. Um, but I want to connect some of his ideas with a foundation that he seems to lack, and that is uh, a Christian theology of engaging with the physical world. And uh, I'll, we'll see how that works. <laughs> um, so um, I'm going to do just just reflect on a couple. This is the second section now, um, and I want to just reflect on a couple. Uh, books, uh, works of literature that give you a little vision into how things have changed, how things might have been like in certain contexts before and how things are uh, now. And the first one, I'm not actually going to read any quotes specifically, but I'm just going to kind of describe some of the themes of uh, the book Farmer Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder. <clears throat> and so she's the author of the, the series of the Little House books, Little House in the Big Woods, Little House on the Prairie. Um, which, which sort of chronicle her life as a as a child traveling west with her family and basically pioneers in a covered wagon, uh, and all of the the joys and challenges uh, that came with that. This this story, Farmer Boy, is uh, the story of her her husband's upbringing before they met, uh, and he grew up in upstate New York. Um, most of the story takes place around 1865, 1866 in that ballpark. And I just want to mention three things that come across really powerfully in this story, and, and I'll try to think if I if I think of specific illustrations, I'll I'll um, I'll mention them. But three themes that are really interesting in this story and uh, appealing and yet unusual today. So uh, first first thing is the incredible competence and resourcefulness of his father and mother. Very you know divided into fairly traditional. Uh, Roles, male and female roles, and yet both of them super competent and busy all day long. Um, you know, doing things that, that are putting to use an accumulated knowledge and experience of, of years and years and years. And so between the two of them, they can really do almost everything that needs to be done on this large uh, farm. And so Laura Ingalls Wilder describes in wonderful detail many of the things that, that need to be done. And that, that uh, Almanza, who's the boy, who, who's the main character in the story, 
um, he's witnessing these things and trying to learn these things by watching his father all the time. And so this is wonderful. Um, you know, there's things that you do on the farm when you can't do anything else. But, oh, yeah, this is something that we can do because you're always busy. And he was he was sitting on a shaving horse, cutting shingles with a draw knife, you know, and, he, and uh, Almanza would sit on his lap and they'd do it together, you know. Um, but, you know, a, a lost art. Obviously, not many people cut shingles with a draw knife on a shaving horse anymore. <clears throat> but it's just, it's just part of the, of the kind of uh, wealth of experience and knowledge that someone would have to have who was running a big farm like that in 1866. Uh, secondly, Almanza's unquenchable desire for more responsibility and mastery. He really, 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 really wants more responsibility. He really wants to be entrusted with more and more and more uh, new skills. He wants to be entrusted with more demanding tasks. Ultimately, he longs to show his father that he's ready to own a cult and to, and to break, uh, break a cult himself. Uh, but he starts with growing a pumpkin and then raising a suckling pig and then eventually a team of oxen that he has to, to train to respond to his commands so they can pull his sled. Uh, he has to figure out how to untangle them when they get stuck in a huge snowdrift, uh, dragging a sled covered in huge logs. Um, only at the end of the story is Almanzo entrusted with a young horse, after a lot you know, of learning. Uh, but all the while, he's learning how to survive and prosper in that world, in that time. So that's his, that's his kind of, this uh, unbelievable desire for more responsibility. Let's say that's something, uh, it's, it, it displays a kind of grit and perseverance, um, and tenacity that is, that is rare among young people today, I would say. And I'm not just being critical of young people, but, um, it's rare in myself. <laughs> um, thirdly, uh, the father has what today would be considered a callous Willingness to let his son fail and figure out problems for himself. So he's the opposite of a modern helicopter parent. If you think of a helicopter parent who sort of hovers over their child, is so eager to protect them from failure that the end result is that the kid grows up to be totally unprepared for the real world, right? Uh, unable to deal with any real difficulties because they've always been sort of cushioned from reality, you know. And so the father is sort of the opposite of this. Um, He's not callous. He's not negligent at all. He's, he's watching his son very, very carefully, but he knows the best way that Almanza's going to learn what he has to learn is to, is to figure it out, right? Um, <clears throat> he wants Almanzo's kind of sphere of, of uh, agency to expand, just as Almanzo does, actually. So even though the uh, the Industrial Revolution was already well underway, uh, Farmer Board describes a world which in some ways predates the Industrial Revolution. This is the farm life. Uh, this isn't city life. Um, it's a world where ordinary people are expected to perform highly skilled tasks, which demand both their full mental engagement as well as very skilled hands. Uh, it's not an easy world at all. There's an amazing passage where it, there's a frost at night and they have to, everybody gets out of bed and they, they have to go pour water on all of the young corn plants. Otherwise, when the sun comes up, they're all going to be decimated. So you have to get up in the middle of the night in the freezing cold. Otherwise, you may lose your entire crop for the season. Um, so it's not easy. It's not romanticized. Um, at least I don't think so very much. It, it seems it, it paints a pretty rough picture of what of what life would be like. Uh, but it's also a world in which work was really meaningful and in some ways fulfilling 
and the desire to work and take on responsibilities is a good and normal thing. <laughs> you, you know, young people should want to take on more responsibilities. Um, so there wasn't any such thing as like emerging adults back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you, he was already acting like an adult by the time he was 12 <laughs> and able to do a lot of things that I'll never learn how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I'm just going to read a passage out of East of Eden, uh, which is kind of a strange passage to read. There's many, many more profound passages to read out of East of Eden, but this one stuck out to me as I was thinking about this lecture. Um, Adam Trask is the main character in Steinbeck's novel. <clears throat> and uh, I think he, Steinbeck looks a little bit like John Krasinski in that picture. Is that true? Is that just me? Uh, just you. Just you. <laughs> I think he looks great. Anyway. Um, it's just, maybe it's, yeah, just me. Uh, so Adam Trask has purchased a new car. He's a wealthy landowning farmer, but he knows nothing about cars. No, nobody really did at that point. Uh, and it's been delivered to his farm by his friend, who's the car dealer, Will Hamilton. Uh, but in order for Adam to learn how to start and operate and maintain his new Ford, a mechanic has to come and spend the entire following day at the farm, tutoring him on how this thing works. And so this is around the turn of the 20th century, maybe just before the outbreak of World War I. So this is near the turn of the 20th century. And I'll just read uh, a section here. And this is Steinbeck just kind of reflecting on um, cars. It is hard now to imagine the difficulty of learning to start, drive, and maintain an automobile. Not only was the whole process complicated, but one had to start from scratch. Today's children... Breathe in the theory, habits, and idiosyncrasies of the internal combustion engine in their cradles. But then you started with the blank belief that it would not run at all. And sometimes you were right. (laughs) Also, to start the engine of a modern car, you do just two things. Turn a key and touch the starter. Everything else is automatic. The process used to be more complicated. It required not only a good memory, a strong arm, an angelic temper, and a blind hope, but also a certain amount of practice of magic, so that a man about to turn the crank of a Model T might be seen to spit on the ground and whisper a spell. (laughs) Will Hamilton explained the car and went back and explained it again. His customers were wide-eyed, interested as terriers, cooperative, and did not interrupt. But as he began for the third time, Will saw that he was getting no place. So this is the next day after he's fa- failed to explain the automobile to Adam Trask. And this is the, the, the smart aleck young engineer mechanic who's come out to just to, to teach them a thing or two about this car. First of all, he scolds Adam for not having done his homework and reading this huge manual. He hasn't done his reading on the car yet, right? Uh, so this is the mechanic. He moved to the front of the car. Now, this here is the crank. And see this little wire sticking out of the radiator? That's the choke. Now watch carefully while I'll show you. You grab the crank like this and push till she catches. See how my thumb is turned down? If I grabbed her the other way with my thumb around her and she was to kick, why well, she'd knock my thumb off. Thumb off. Got that? <laughs> he didn't look up, but he knew they were nodding. <laughs> now, he said, look careful. I push in and bring her up until I got compression. And then, why, I put out this wire. I pull out this wire and I bring her around carefully to suck in gas. You hear that sucking sound? That's choke. 
but don't pull her too much or you'll flutter. Now, I'll let go of the wire and give her a hell of a spin. And as soon as she catches, I'll run around and advance the spark and retard the gas and reach over and throw the switch quick over to Magneto. Uh, that's where it says mag. And there you are. His listeners were limp. After all this, they had just got the engine started. The boy kept at them. I want you to say after me, so you learn it. Spark up, gas down. They repeated in chorus. Spark up, gas down. Switch to bat. Switch to bat. Crank to compression, thumb down. Uh, crank to compression, thumb down. Easy over, choke out. <laughs> anyway, on and on Switch to mag, switch to mag. Now we'll go over, now we'll go over her again. Just call me Joe. <laughs> anyway, he's just, uh, Anyway, intentionally trying to show the complexity of what it was, uh, both the early, the, the automobile itself, which is way more complicated to get started and to operate, but also, like he said, the blank slate that the human mind was when it, when it came to automobiles. You don't even know what you're dealing with. It's this complete mysterious novelty, right? Um, with nothing to compare it to, all this complexity and hassle I think must have been considered just normal. It's just part of the necessary work uh, of owning an automobile. These things were crazy, mysterious, you know, uh, you know wagons that could go by themselves. <clears throat> they required real expertise. So in pre-World War I America, to take advantage of whatever convenience a car would bring, it was understood that you would take on a significant weight of responsibility. In a sense, you have to become a mechanic <laughs> to operate a car. In the first paragraph I read, though, Steinbeck says some things that might have been true back in 1951 when he wrote the novel, um, but are not true now. He says, Today's children breathe in the theory, habits, and idiosyncrasies of the internal combustion engine in their cradles. And also, to start the engine of a modern car, you do just two things, turn a key and touch the starter. Uh, this might have been true in 1951, uh, but in 2020, you, you need to do even less to start a car. It would be hard to find a car that had a starter button anymore, right? Um, you basically just have to have your foot on the on the brake and turn the turn the key and magic, right? Everything is automatic. Uh, also the majority of the mechanical marvels that allow a car to run are automatic and completely hidden from our view, right? If you look at these old cars, you see all the mechanics kind of hanging out. I mean there's a hood, but you but it's very exposed. You can look at it very easily and if you know what you're you know what you're doing, you can recognize where every part is. Um, but uh, things today are hidden from view. The internal workings of things are hidden from us. And as a result, we, we don't really need to understand them as long as they're working. They're out of sight and out of mind. So children today, I don't, I don't think, grow, grow up so much with a, a knowledge of the internal combustion engine that they've just sort of absorbed from their culture at all. Um, I think they grow up with the belief that cars simply work. Unless they don't. Uh, it's an attitude that goes something like this. <clears throat> I push the pedal and it goes. And uh, my car operates as it should and allows me to get where I want to go. Um, so that I never have to really think about the internal workings of it. It might as well actually be a magic carpet for all I know about it. right? Uh, until it breaks. And then it's not a magic carpet anymore. Um, so... Uh, Matthew Crawford begins his book with a series of observations about how many modern appliances hide the inner workings, which is very similar to what I've just been talking about. <clears throat> he says this, another long quote from Matthew Crawford. 
This creeping concealedness takes various forms. The fasteners holding small appliances together often require esoteric screwdrivers not commonly available. It's very true. Apparently to prevent the curious or the angry from interrogating their innards. By way of contrast, older readers will recall that until recent decades, Sears catalogs included blown-up parts diagrams and conceptual schematics for all appliances and many other mechanical goods. It was simply taken for granted that such information would be demanded by the consumer. A decline in tool use would seem to betoken a shift in our relationship to our own stuff, more passive and more dependent. And indeed, there are few occasions for the kind of spiritedness that is called forth when we take things in hand for ourselves, whether to fix them or to make them. And I think of my friend who was working on his furnace all day. That spiritedness is a really good word for what he was doing. Only a, a truly spirited person would have bothered to do that. <clears throat> what ordinary people once made, they buy. And what they once fixed for themselves, they replace entirely or hire an expert to repair whose expert fix often involves replacing an entire system because some minute component has failed. And this last observation really rang true for me. We had to, we had a Sears repairman come out to look at our, our gas range stove, uh, and had to replace this massive big control panel on the top because some tiny bit of it had failed. But of course that tiny bit was impossible to replace by itself and so we had to replace the whole thing, most of which wasn't even broken. Uh, and that's just normal. That's just what happens. <laughs> There's no other way to fix the stove. <clears throat> so, uh, many such products today are designed to discourage curious investigation and to encourage magical thinking. And you can see the reason why is because there's always someone ready to sell you a new one. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to just buy a new one if, if what you have to go through to fix it is, is so ridiculous. Um, and this has Matthew Crawford saying this over many, many years has produced a kind of passivity in us towards towards the things we use. And I'm sure you can think of many examples uh, as well of, of uh, that are similar to this. But I want to I want to move on now and just and engage with the question: um, is the, is there really a problem here, uh, or is there not a problem here? And uh, I think um, I just want to to voice some of the objections to this idea that, that it's a real loss when, when manual competence declines. Is it a real loss? <laughs> uh, what's the problem? And I, my first objection here, um, sort of playing devil's advocate a bit, <clears throat> goes like this. So uh, widespread manual competence is basically an obsolete thing of the past. Let's just be honest. Um, to argue for the return of shop class, so to speak, is to be nostalgic and sentimental. There's no major loss to lament here. Uh, people ask questions like, uh, do contemporary Americans really need to know how to do anything? Uh, hasn't the global economy, prevalence of digital technology made most manual skills basically unnecessary? And isn't that good? Um, if we can afford to pay other people to do all the things for us, why wouldn't we? If we can buy something cheap made in China, and when it breaks by another one, why wouldn't we? Uh, behind many of these attitudes is the sense that handmade objects or the practice of repairing your own broken objects is just romanticism. We live in a time where people no longer need to know 
these primitive skills and we should be learning how to live in the world that really exists where work is much more flexible and undefined and usually tech driven um, so uh, so that's the objection <laughs> of course I think there's some there's some truth and merit to this objection uh, it is true that most contemporary Americans um, with a bit of money can get away with producing very little with their hands uh, again, you know, you can buy very cheap things and replace them instantly. Um, it's possible to get by in life with very little engagement with physical stuff around us at all, particularly the more the more engaged with digital gadgets we are. So the loss of manual competence is not costing anybody their life, uh, you know, in, in an affluent country anyway. This may not be the case at all in other places, by the way. Some, in some places in the world, to be manually competent is a matter of life and death. Um, and certainly sometimes in history, but uh, to the average sort of s- suburban American, it's manual competence and the lack, the lack of manual competence doesn't, isn't a life-threatening situation. And we have to acknowledge that there actually is a real danger in romanticizing the past. Uh, for example, we should be thankful for the ways in which some newer technologies really do free us up. So you don't have to think about all the things we might have had to before. Uh, for instance... You don't need a mechanical uh, mechanical engineering degree to drive your car, and that's that's I'm thankful for that myself. After reading the passage in East of Eden, I'm really glad that I don't have to go through all of that to to maybe not even start the car. You know, um, <clears throat> so romanticism is 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 uh, you know often not not a helpful way to think. Uh, convenience and the the other. Sorry, convenience and the other things it frees us up to do uh, is really a valuable thing. I think we have to acknowledge that. But often, with with convenience, as you know, comes comes blissful ignorance. It's, it may be blissful, but it's also ignorance. Um, and every once in a while, we see the cost of that ignorance. So, um, in addition, I want to say that the accusation of romanticism is sometimes a totally bogus one. So this is me pushing back a little bit against the against the argument I just voiced a minute ago. It's a quote from Nicholas Carr, who's written a number of really interesting books. Uh, One book a number of years ago called The Shallows, which is talking about the the impact of of Internet use on how we think in our minds. And uh, that was years ago. I think many of the things he wrote in that book have been proven to be even more true than he he knew. Uh, This is from a different book called The Glass Cage, And he says this, uh, We assume that anyone who rejects a new tool in favor of an older one is guilty of nostalgia, of making choices sentimentally rather than rationally. But the real sentimental fallacy is the assumption that a new thing is always better suited to our purposes and intentions than an old thing. That's the view of a child, naive and pliable. What makes one tool superior to another has nothing to do with how new it is. What matters is how it enlarges us or diminishes us, how it shapes our experiences of nature and culture and one another. I think this is really, really a helpful point. He's, he's basically saying that the, the assumption that the newer technology is automatically the more, the more relevant and useful it will be to us uh, is just as naive as the nostalgia for typewriters, just a different kind of naivete, right? Uh, it's It's based on the same sort of sentimentality, actually, but instead of being misty-eyed for the way things used to be, it's being misty-eyed about humanity's inevitable progress into the future. 
you can be misty-eyed about both, <laughs> right? Um, so there's no rational reason to assume that every new technology will be better for us than what came before. Just like there's no rational reason why societies will inevitably progress towards perfection. You know, progress is, is, a, is a huge matter of faith for a lot of people, and it's actually a deeply sentimental idea because it denies the reality we see around us all the time. Well, what evidence do we have that humankind is moving towards some utopian reality? Zero. Um, but many people like to believe that. So, uh, it's possible, even likely, given what I would, what I believe as a Christian, that, p- that people are finite and sinful, deeply broken, it's even likely that society will seriously stray away from truth and goodness. Uh, regression, rather than progress, has been known to happen in the past, right? Uh, new is not synonymous with good, and the same, we can say that about all kinds of things, but in this case we're talking about new technologies. Um, so a second objection to the main sort of argument I'm making here. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the loss of manual competence is a problem. And then there's people that say, no, it's not. Get over it. <laughs> so this is another, another sort of objection to my main point. So uh, it goes like this. Uh, let's not be naive, naive about the differences between people. People have very, very different gifts and tendencies. Some have an aptitude. For manual tasks and sort of sort of a practical coordination, uh, so that making and fixing things come net, comes naturally to them. Uh, other people neither have the ability nor the desire to work with their hands. So it's kind of foolish to claim that there's this innate human longing to engage with the physical world, to make, to fix, etc. Uh, some people should simply not be trusted with working on their cars. And again, there, there's some there's some real merit to this claim as well. Uh, my grandparents, I'll give a little personal anecdote here. My grandparents would make an interesting case study along these lines. So my maternal grandmother was always self-conscious about not being book smart. Um, she always considered herself uneducated and to some degree. Um, but she was extremely manually competent. And not just in stereotypically feminine ways. Uh, she had a workshop where she made and fixed furniture all the time. Uh, she showed me how to splice two pieces of rope together when I was a kid to, to use on her sailboat. She was always working on fixing things on her sailboat. I, uh, it was a total mystery to me how that works, to splice rope together. Um, so I, I didn't come away with any great knowledge. But it was very impressive. <laughs> uh, she seemed to be able to learn how to repair most things if she put her mind to it. And she could knit and sew and do all those things as well. Uh, my grandfather was was uh, more of a typically brainy person. His knowledge of history and geography was amazing. He, he could he could rattle off anything. He could answer almost any question you would throw at him about history and geography and those kinds of things. Uh, he flew bomber planes in World War II and and later became an airline pilot for his for the rest of his working career. So obviously a very very capable person. But when it came to manual competence around the house, he could hardly do anything. He could hardly make his oatmeal in the morning without breaking something. And you'd hear him, like you'd hear him crashing around, and and, uh, and it was just hilarious. He was like not not coordinated with his hands, not to be trusted uh, in that way. And so there was room in their household uh, for each to sort of go with their giftings. Thankfully, this is wonderful and wise. My grandmother was clearly the fixer. My grandfather was not. 
Um, he balanced the checkbook, but it would not have, have been a good thing. It would be a naive thing to expect him to, to mess with the car, even in minor ways. Uh, my point is that it was a good thing that my grandmother was a fixer because her manual competence was a huge asset to her home and to her family. She probably saved them lots of money over the years, both by repairing things and by making every Christmas and birthday present uh, for years and years. But even that aside, even the money that was saved aside, she was good at it, and it gave her a sense of satisfaction uh, as she served others with that gift. But she never saw her manual gifts as a sign of her intelligence or as being as valuable as book knowledge. So this was sad in a way. She didn't view it, she didn't view that as intelligence. It was just, oh, I can do some things. You know. um, and so she continued to be self-conscious about about herself in a lot of ways. Although she was de- obviously deeply intelligent in her ability to do all those things so well. Uh, <clears throat> not everyone has the same inclination to work with their hands. That's true, or the same abilities. But when people are inclined in that way, it's important to bless it and not condescend to it as being somehow uh, some lower form of work or some lower gift, right? Uh, not to dis- especially when, we, when young people who are sort of setting out in the world and trying to think about their vocation, what they're going to do for work, uh, we do people a real disservice if we just somehow, whether whether directly or by implication, imply that uh, that work with your hands is somehow lower or less. Um, prestigious, important, less likely to influence the world, uh, whatever. There's people, there's, people are so different from each other, have so many different kinds of gifts. And I'll say a little bit more about this later, but there's absolutely no biblical foundation for saying that to work with your hands is somehow lower or less important. So, uh, <clears throat> I, I maintain that loss of manual competence is a loss. <laughs> and one of the reasons I want to say that is that, uh, In part, uh, it's a consequence of the dominance of digital technology in our lives. I mean, it it started much earlier, and there's there's trends that started much earlier than the advent of of computers and the Internet, but the dominance of digital technology has has, uh, accelerated the loss of manual competence in lots of ways. Um, Because we increasingly live and breathe in sort of virtual spaces, virtual digital spaces, the time we spend there is one of the biggest obstacles to engaging the physical world with our hands. Now, the Brie, uh, forgive me for those of you who actually were, were, were there whenever it was, we watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma, we watched, um, and uh, most of the people interviewed in this film, it's about, it's about um, social media and, and some of the um, destructive things that are going on because of our use of social media. Most of the people interviewed in the film were from within the tech industry, or they used to be in the tech industry. And so they were people with very high-level jobs in Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Reddit, Pinterest. I don't even know what some of those things are, but I know, you know I've heard of Facebook, definitely. Um, uh, the contributors spoke with one voice about the sinister effects of social media in our lives, and many of them have children and, and confess they wouldn't let their kids come near it, even though they had designed a lot of the... Um, algorithms that, that control this stuff. Um, and uh, they described in detail how the tech companies use extremely sophisticated knowledge of our psychological vulnerabilities 
to get us addicted to our devices. Uh, and this is why so many people are literally unable to be separated from their phones. Uh, human loneliness, human vanity, the desire to be seen and known, and the fear that you'll never be seen and known. Uh, a deep desire for approval. All these human tendencies are strategically exploited, <laughs> um, and even, you could say, ruthlessly exploited by by tech companies. There was a guy who was there who, who sounded very proud of the fact that he uh, engineered the like button on Facebook, this idea that you can like somebody else's post. And, you know, he, he was like, well, this, the whole idea was that we were just sort of spread, spread joy and affirmation. But after a little while, it, it became clear that the like button was responsible for more depression and anxiety in people than anything else Facebook had ever done. It's because everybody who posts something is suddenly tormented by how many likes they've received or, or, or tormented that they haven't received enough likes. And, oh my gosh, you know, just um, chaos and anxiety. Um, all over the like button. Really, really fascinating. You can see how it gets had these very deep insecurities that most people have, right? And, and, uh, exploits them. So, uh, lots of studies have shown that the notifications on your phone, when, you, when your phone like beeps when you get a text or an email, um, and like I said, the number of likes you receive after you post something, they are addictive in a similar way, uh, to hard drugs and alcohol in the, in, in the, to the extent that they produce a dopamine rush in your brain and the pleasure centers of your brain which is the same same thing that, that, that substances will often do uh, and becomes the sort of the foundation for addictions very similar thing going on uh, with with our digital devices <clears throat> and uh, obviously our undivided attention is very valuable to Facebook Instagram etc um, you do not pay for your Facebook account because Facebook gets paid by advertisers who use their platform to access as much of your attention as they possibly can. And that's the main, one of the main themes of the documentary and of uh, several books that have been written in the last 10 years. Um, these attention merchants. <laughs> uh, the more of your attention or time Facebook can claim, the more they get paid by the advertisers. And so naturally Facebook and other social media platforms are in the business of co-opting as much of your attention as they can uh, and getting you addicted is really the best way to do that. Um, one of the quotes that stood out to me, I mean, I'm, I'm not a tech-savvy person at all, so this might have been well-known to everybody in the world except me, but it, it, it was poignant to me. Uh, within the tech industry, people say, if you use a product that you do not pay for, then you are the product. If you use a product that you do not pay for, then you are the product. Um, our attention is being sold by social media to advertisers. So this is not news to anyone that's read about this topic at all. There's not, um, nothing new about this. Um, but one of the things I noticed about The Social Dilemma, this, this documentary that we watched, was that there was a pretty despairing tone throughout the entire film. Uh, sort of the assumption of this is just inevitable. Uh, what can we possibly do? It's hopeless. Um, the amount of data being mined and collected about each of us is so vast and comprehensive, it makes these tech companies virtually omniscient in terms of their knowledge of us and their ability to predict what we do, and maybe omnipotent in their ability to not just predict, but to to tell you what you're going to do, <laughs> to form your desires and habits. Um, 
we don't really stand a chance. So we're we're under constant surveillance, and our opinions and our choices are being fed to us. There's no breaking free from this. It's just too big of a problem. Oh well. Um, now this this kind of pessimism uh, it may be realism, I suppose, uh, when we think about the widespread nature of it all and how you know the sheer numbers of people who are who are sort of connected all the time to their devices. Uh, maybe we should be pessimistic. I don't know. Um, but when it comes down to our choices as individuals, despair, I think, is completely inappropriate. I found that coming away from the film. Um, we're not actually trapped in a world in which big tech industries always know where we are and what we're thinking and what we're about to do. The reality is that we're only being surveilled to the degree that we choose to use social media. Um, no one in the documentary mentioned the very low-tech solution of habitually going for walks and leaving your phone at home. Very low-tech solution. Uh, giving yourself several hours a week of blessed, unsurveilled freedom uh, in which you're not being manipulated into buying anything and you're not, you're not constantly having to check on what other people think about you and uh, nobody knows where you are. If you leave your phone at home, uh, if you have your phone on in your pocket, someone can know where you are at all. <laughs> but <clears throat> so, uh, why focus on social media in this particular lecture? Um, I think there's there's hope that manual work could actually become part of the part of the remedy if we allow it to be. Not it's not the solution, obviously. It's very complicated, but but um, in the way that. Our, our kind of addiction to the virtual, streamlined, uh, magical world of, of digital technology has has kind of contributed to the decline of manual competence. Mm -hmm. I think to uh, to try to really work at growing in manual competence can help us gain freedom. It can work the other way around, gain freedom from the from our dependence on digital technology. And uh, what I mean is this: so when when you set out to make something, say. Um, not even something terribly ambitious, but say say it's your first carpentry project and you want to make some wooden bookshelves. Um, even though it's not the most complicated project, uh, it does demand a high level of sustained and undivided attention. That is, if we uh, really throw ourselves into it wholeheartedly and we want to avoid losing fingers, it takes uh, attention, undivided and sustained attention. So if I'm sewing a board or hammering a nail, sustained, undivided attention is simply required. You can't really do anything else at the same time. Uh, I really can't be doing anything else. I, uh, the activity must, by its very nature, exclude other activities. And so this kind of exclusive nature of, of most manual work is what can make it deeply restful, actually, particularly if we're, if we're not used to doing it. Um, I don't want to be naive if somebody, you know, as a landscaper all day long, you're worn out by the end of the day. But for, for those of us who don't often work with our hands, the, the, the act of working with our hands and doing something like this, building your shelves, can be deeply restful because it forces us to essentially unitask rather than multitask. Uh, it quiets our minds. It can. I find this strangely, um, not that this is really manual competence, but when I mow the lawn, it's actually deeply restful for me because it's, it's one of the things that I that needs to be done. You can't rush it. And for some reason, I, mentally, I can't really do anything else except just mow the lawn. 
I don't know whether it's the vibrations of the machine or something. I, when I first started mowing lawns, I thought, oh, I can plan my next, you know, prayer meeting thoughts. Or, oh, I can write a letter in my head. Or, oh, I can even pray while I mow the lawn. Nope, I can't do anything. Nothing works except mowing the lawn when I'm mowing the lawn. And uh, at first that was frustrating, and then I kind of realized, this is really great. <laughs> I'm just going to mow the lawn, and I'm going to try to do a good job at it. And it may take me a couple hours, and then at the end of it, first of all, you have something nice to look at. There's an immediate result of your work. It doesn't last long, but it's there. And I find that I'm, I feel sort of mentally rested, because I've been doing something that hasn't allowed me to think about a million other things, or do or do anything else. Um, I don't know if that's everybody's experience. It's certainly my experience. <clears throat> um, back to the bookshelves. So because of there's some mental challenges inherent in it, learning how to do it, learning how to measure and to cut and everything, and there's certainly a lot of satisfaction in working with the wood and producing something that's useful. Uh, I think it's one of the best ways to cheat the attention merchants of our attention and to kind of wrench it back towards something real and... Uh, healthy and productive because the attention we give to making something in the real world is attention that we're not giving to advertisers through our Facebook and Instagram use Um, we resist being controlled when we choose to make things intentionally you may say and this is is my uh, I thought of this so you may I'm going to sort of cut off the objection before you make it uh, that in order to build a bookshelf I'll probably have to watch a couple dozen YouTube videos right true. Probably I will watch some YouTube videos whenever I, whenever I need to make something I've never made before. But even, even then, uh, the technology is not calling the shots or dictating what I should be doing. Uh, I already have a purpose that I'm setting out to do. The technology is helping me to achieve that. And as long as I can be self-controlled and not do a YouTube deep dive, go down a wormhole watching a string of, of videos, as long as I can avoid doing that, then... YouTube as a technology is helping me to do something external to itself, which I'm determining, not not the technology. <clears throat> uh, Andy Crouch um, wrote this really thoughtful book called The TechWise Family. It's a very short, very practical book. Um, it's really it's good. It's not just for people who have families and kids, and they're trying to negotiate the whole use of technology in that context. It's for anybody, actually. It's really wise, but. One of the things he talks about in his family is, is uh, well, one of the things he criticizes about about our digital gadgets is it produces in us an expectation of easy everywhere. Basically, every bit of information, everything I need should be accessible everywhere I go easily. And that's just the expectation that, that having a smartphone builds in us. Uh, and for this reason, he really he really demands in his household that, that digital technology does not take a, take root in the center of the house, what he, what he describes as... The hearth, what would have been the hearth, the center of activity of the house. Um, the hearth, he doesn't really have a hearth, but that's just, you know, the, uh, metaphorically, the center of, of, the, of the family and the house is a place for challenging and creative projects to happen and space to interact with each other around those challenging and creative projects uh, where your children will actually learn courage and tenacity and all these things that we want to, that we want to encourage our children to learn. Children to learn. <clears throat> so that's a good I recommend that book anyway uh, I want to move on to my last section making and fixing and human thriving um, 
It has to be said that in recent years, uh, attitudes towards manual competence have been changing. There's, there's, there's lots and lots of people who have seen this as a problem and actually really want to engage physically and make things themselves. Doing the DIY kind of uh, wave of interest over the mass, last number of years uh, is great, and it's it's sort of you know it's kind of a cool thing to be able to, to make something yourself. Um, this, this was true even before COVID. Um, one of my good friends came over with a with a, sour, a loaf of sourdough that she made, and she wanted to make sure that I knew that she was into this before COVID. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was really funny. <laughs> so many people have gone into sourdough bread only since COVID, and those are just the you know the newcomers, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but um, in his book, uh, uh, The Revenge of Analog, uh, David Sachs says a lot of interesting things. He, he, each chapter is kind of looking at a, um, well, what he, I'll just explain what he means by analog is any aspect of life that is not digital, <laughs> basically. Anything that uh, engages with real physical things. And uh, this book is kind of about a resurgence of interest in real physical things. And he, he talks a lot in the beginning about um, vinyl records as they used to be totally dead and factories shut down and with the with the the advent of CDs tapes first CDs and then digital music on your on your phone or on your iPod um, and then in recent years there's been a, a, such a resurgence in, in the interest in vinyl among young people that uh, all these factories producing vinyl records have have uh, have opened up again and new factories have been built and it's just it's just sort of taken off. Um, anyway, that's an example of analog. So something that something that resists the 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 pull of digital technology. He says this. Um, this is David Sachs. Nope. Nope. Maybe I just didn't put it up there. Never mind. I'll just read it. Listen closely. <laughs> For increasing numbers of people around the world, in nearly every place where digital life has acquired a real and lasting presence. Analog is now a conscious choice, requiring greater cost, both materially and in terms of our time and mental capacity, than, digi- than the digital default. And yet people increasingly, increasingly elect it. Why? One reason is pleasure. Analog gives us the joy of creating and possessing real, tangible things in realms where physical objects and experiences are fading. These pleasures range from the serendipity of getting a roll of film back from the developer to the fun of playing a new board game with friends to the, to the luxurious sound of unfolding the Sunday newspaper <laughs> and the instant reward that comes from seeing your thoughts scratched onto a sheet of, of paper with the push of a pen. These are priceless experiences for the people who enjoy them. And then he goes on to argue that there's actually a profitable market for analog things because of this perennial appeal of tangible objects to people. <laughs> um, they'll never just be replaced forever by, by uh, digital products. So he's arguing uh, that the fascination with the more primitive tools, primitive entertainment and activities is more than just a trend that will settle, settle down and pass away. Um, even if demand for one thing collapses, our culture will never completely abandon analog. Um, so sex is talking mostly about what we choose to buy as consumers 
film cameras, turntables, vinyl, um, paper newspapers, uh, all because of the pleasure we find in touching and seeing and hearing real things. Uh, but I think this pleasure is perhaps even more satisfying when we make or fix something ourselves. Mm. So it's not just about what we choose to consume. It's about what we produce with our hands, things that did not exist before we engaged with the world. Um, Matthew Crawford actually says something interesting at this point. <laughs> says, the satisfactions of, manifest, of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. They seem to relieve him of the felt need to offer chattering interpretations of himself to vindicate his worth. <laughs> he can simply point. The building stands. The car now runs. The lights are on. Boasting is what a boy does because he has no real effect in the world. But the tradesman must reckon with the, infalli the infallible judgment of reality where one's failures or shortcomings cannot be interpreted away. His well-founded pride is far from the gratuitous self-esteem that educators were to, would impart to students as though by magic. And then he goes on, he's reflecting on the pleasure he experiences when he used to be an electrician, when he would finish a job, turn on the lights, mm -hmm. and... Uh, let's see if I have this here. Yeah. I never cease to take pleasure in the moment at the end of a job when I would flip on the switch and there was a light. It was an experience of agency and competence. The effects of my work were visible to all to see, so my competence was real for others as well. <clears throat> so what are uh, David Saxon and uh, Matthew Crawford onto here? Um, there's something more going on than just, you know, a hipster obsession with vinyl um, or the, the satisfaction of, of an enthusiastic electrician. You know, that's, there's something more than just those particulars. I think Crawford's obvious reference to Genesis 1 here is really telling. Uh, when an electrician has correctly wired a house and the lights come on, uh, the sense of accomplishment and effectiveness in the world is in a sense akin to God saying, let there be light. Um... This is because the Bible teaches us that we were made in the image of God, who is the supreme maker and has supreme agency. Um, but the dominion of people is, is completely limited, nothing like the dominion that God has, obviously. Uh, but it's nonetheless a picture and miniature of the creative power of God himself. And that's part of what being an image bearer of God means. So Matthew Crawford is describing the pleasure of exercising his God-given dominion in the world. The reality that with, with hard work and engagement and attention, you can actually affect the world around you for the better. Uh, he does not really explore why this might be. He describes what he calls the poignant longing for responsibility and the desire to feel the world is intelligible but he does not venture to guess where it comes from. From whence the satisfaction from engaging with physical stuff? You know, from whence comes the hunger to produce something tangible with our hands, whether it's something new or it's something old that we've fixed and made serviceable again. Matthew Crawford is observing, I think very perceptively, the signs of the image of God, and specifically the desire for a true expression of dominion. 
He's, he, I think of him as he's describing the longing of a steward to steward things. That's what he's, the longing of a steward to steward things. Uh, his diagnosis of the problems uh, in the state of work today also, I think, ring true with a Christian belief in dominion. Because uh, we were made to exercise dominion. People never thrive when it's taken away. This is something that we talk about a lot at Labrie. Um, dominion is such a, uh, a built-in capacity uh, in human beings, this ability that men and women both have to engage the world around them, to have a vision for something different and to affect the world around them, whether it's in, in any, not, not just physically with their hands, but um, dominion is exercised in all kinds of ways by human beings every day. But when it's taken away, or the dominion of someone is suppressed, um, for instance, in slavery, as an example, um, it always goes badly, because we're suppressing something that is God-given and, and, and creational about what a human being is and should be. Um, and so uh, there's always terrible consequences to doing that. And uh, there are always slave revolts. This is not. This shouldn't surprise people who believe in dominion. <clears throat> but uh, dominion is something that's tricky, though, obviously, because it's been affected by the fall. Dominion is this creational good thing, and yet... Uh, it can be taken away from us by the domination of others, which is this sort of exaggerated dominion of taking, t- taking too much control over other people. Or dominion can be, can be lost or weakened by um, what I think of as, as uh, abdicating responsibility. When I don't really want to take responsibility for anything around me, I sort of leave that to other people. Maybe I'm afraid of failure or whatever. But that's a kind of abdication of dominion that's actually a good thing that I'm supposed to, to exercise. That doesn't go well for people either. Um, and so uh, what, what Matthew Crawford is describing is like a little vision into, into, into a good aspect of what dominion could look like. But the problem is, and, and the history of work that he describes really bears out this, um, the ways in which dominion has been trampled on. And messed up, and, and so our relationship to work is, is has really suffered as a result. <clears throat> so God's reality, I think, the way God has designed things and designed us is always nudging us, whether we realize it or not. And through both good and bad experiences in the world, we're being shown something about our own design. This is why, you know, this is why the mechanics at the Ford factory walked out when they were told they had to, from now on, screw in one bolt over and over again, right? There was something almost insulting about that to them, who, who, who were people who understood how a whole car worked, right? And had made them before. Um, that reaction is, is, in a sense, a sign of the type of, of what a human being is, right? Uh, but also the, the, the good things, the, the, the joy that Matthew Crawford experiences when he, when he successfully repairs a, uh, a motorcycle and the, and the owner revs the engine and tears out of the parking lot. There's this sort of exalted sense of accomplishment and agency in the world, which, again, in a positive sense, is, is an indication of, of true dominion. <clears throat> so the closest that Matthew Crawford comes to naming the image of God is in this final quote. Uh, and I love it. And I, I just want him to come out and say that the image of God is a reality, but he doesn't. <laughs> but um, he says this, Thinking about manual engagement seems to require nothing less 
than that we consider what a human being is. That is, we are led to consider how the specifically human manner of of being is lit up, as it were, by man's interaction with the world through his hands. For this, a new sort of anthropology is called for, one that is adequate to explain, to experience, sorry, one that is adequate to our experience of agency. I would say it's not a new anthropology at all. Such an account might illuminate the appeal of manual work in a way that is neither romantic nor nostalgic, but rather simply gives credit to the practice of building things, fixing things, and routinely tending to things as an element of human flourishing. I was like, that's like, that to me like could have come right out of Genesis 1. <laughs> this is, this is what it is to be, to be put in the garden to tend to it, to care for it, and to have dominion in it. So, <clears throat> Reality is many people live very anxious and scattered and unsatisfying lives, uh, which sometimes includes their work. And uh, we all, I think, given that we live in, you know, well, most of us live in, in modern America, uh, are prone to the sort of narcissistic and magical thinking that, that, that Matthew Crawford describes. Um, all of us, to some degree, are out of touch with reality with the result of the stuff around us. Um, Given that this is the existence of many people, I think uh, practices that involve significant mastery of physical things uh, have the ability to ground us in really redemptive ways. So uh, I think this is because they get us in touch with reality outside of our heads, like you keep saying. Uh, and this inevitably undermines our narcissism when we are attempting to get in touch with reality outside of our heads uh, and it has the potential to really create a humility in us and an awareness of our dependence on God when we're, when we're constantly turning our attention outward from ourselves and our own mental state uh, to real things and real people outside of ourselves. Um, it's a wonderful uh, professor of divinity at St. Andrews named Trevor Hart who's done a lot of writing on the arts and... He writes about it, the accountability that Christian artists should have as they make their art. He's speaking about art, but it totally applies to any number of other endeavors in the world. So he says that Christian art making should include, I think I have this one, hopefully, yeah, a respectful openness first to listen and learn from nature, to discover from it something of its prior orderliness. The artist may discover that true freedom is to be had by engaging in a creative dialogue with an artistry which both precedes and sets limits to its own. The artistic imagination ventures forth, as it were, into a world believed to be already rich with actual and potential meaning. There's a lot in that quote, um, and certainly a, a challenge to anybody who's in the arts, I think. But Trevor Hart's basically saying... Because Christian artists, like you know, like all Christians, uh, believe that the world has been created by God in all of its particularity, all the unique things that are in the world, they should expect to encounter both order and artistry when they set out to work. So part of being a Christian artist is to observe and to learn, to acknowledge to some degree, submit to the ways that God has already ordered the world. We're not coming into a blank slate. We're not walking into a, a, a absolute chaos. We're walking into to a world in which there is a significant amount of order already established that had nothing to do with us. It was there before we got there. 
Um, ultimately, everybody has to submit to realities outside their heads. You know, we're all going to die. Uh, if I jump in the air, I will hit the ground again. Um, reality isn't definable by me. Uh, but the Christian artist, says Trevor Hart, should expect and even enjoy the order that they find when they approach their work. <clears throat> it's not something to rebel against in the name of artistic freedom. It's, it's something to revel in and then to work with, he says in dialogue, with, with, uh, with prior orderliness. So what Matthew Crawford calls reality outside our heads, Trevor Hart calls prior orderliness established by God. In, re- in reality, they're talking about the same thing. <laughs> uh, although I'm not sure Matthew Crawford uh, knows that. But uh, to master a material and produce anything good, there has to be a submission to external facts, the way things just are. And so if you're a sculptor that uses marble, in a sense you're in the same boat as the electrician uh, who's trying to wire a house and have it work. You're both submitting to things that are outside yourself and... And if you're good and you, and you actually really excel in what you're doing, there is, there is a, you can't do that with at least some humility in you because you've submitted to things that aren't you. <laughs> Realities that aren't you. So that's, that's mostly what I have to say tonight. Um, I think just in conclusion, when we think about vocation and the vocations of our children, if we have children, uh, should try not to buy into the assumptions that that um, Matthew Crawford identifies that are so prevalent in our culture about manual work. Um, that it's that it's uh, automatically sort of um, it's it's a cognitively un- undemanding and sort of demeaning and of less value than 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 white collar mental work in an office somewhere. Um, there's no real biblical justification for that, and I'm I'm conscious that I have not. Um, I've been really wanting to sort of get across a lot of the, the thinking of Matthew Crawford in this lecture, and I haven't really put put out a lot of biblical texts or or talked about sort of the biblical foundation for this in any detail. I'm aware of that, but um, that's something that we can certainly talk about later. Um, but working with your hands, I think, is a good and honorable way to serve God. And uh, that's where I'm going to end. So... What we do at Labrie is have a time of, uh, of conversation, time to ask questions, time to push back. If you have if you have issues with anything I've said, I'll do my best to interact with those questions, and uh, we can go for a while. And I think there is the capability of, of typing in questions if you want to engage and you're not here in the room. And I think uh, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. So thank you. Like that as well would, would probably enjoy a greater like emotional 
and social stability as well too, just because mm -hmm. they're so intertwined with their family members to mm -hmm. help sustain the farm as well as their neighbors. Like you can't really mm -hmm. run a farm like that by yourself, and so you're very dependent on others as well mm -hmm. as compared to technology today where we're largely autonomous in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so I think there's just a greater like uh, that wholeness to a person spiritually, emotionally, and socially working with their hands, especially, you know, being digging into God's creation that's mm -hmm. the, the dirt and the soil as well. So dependent in a more immediate way mm -hmm. on things that are out of your control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has to be said also that, you know, these kinds of small family farms that are, that are included diversity of different things and are, are just are, um, a large part of the thing of the past. Uh, thankfully, there's still, still some, but the massive industrial farming is, is, is the model that's kind of taken over much of this country. And, and uh, it doesn't, doesn't look much like Almanza's upbringing. <laughs> but uh, I think that's true, though. That I, I know that um, the, the very, very minor extent to which I've gardened or kept chickens or anything like that, um, you do you do get a sense of, of wonder that these things are, are kind of happening. You, you you prepare something as best you can. You, you try to create the conditions for something to thrive. And then <laughs> something has to happen that's really out of your out of your control. Mm. And uh, it, it should produce a sense of humility and dependence in us. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I want to yeah. sort of um, build on... Um, uh, what Nate was talking about with Farmer Boy, you mentioned the part where Amonzo is looking forward to this breaking the cult, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of this like moment of like a big responsibility, like that he's going to take on. It's mm -hmm. like obviously something that's difficult. Could you talk about that in relationship to like other sort of modern? things that we see as, like, a moment of responsibility is, mm. like, because um, I, I was thinking of, like, okay, so, like, back then it was, like, breaking a cult, whereas, like, now maybe it's, like, um, I was just trying to think of, like, other sort of, the, like, milestones of yeah. responsibility that, like, you know, a teenage boy might take on, like, yeah. um, or a teenager in general, not necessarily a boy, but, um, and, I mean, some of them are obviously less elements of, like, like you described, like sort of this manual competence. Yeah. Um, maybe something like, you know, getting a cell phone. Like, obviously, that's like something that is, it does take some responsibility. Like, yeah. you're not just going to give it, give a cell phone to, you know, some irresponsible child, although plenty of people do. You know. <laughs> <You're> um, <not>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, that there is a, a, a level of responsibility that people yeah. see is like, okay, you're, we're going to give you this thing, yeah. like, be responsible with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Could you comment on like yeah. like we've almost replaced the, these these milestones with like different things yeah. that do still require some responsibility, mm. um, and obviously they're different, and yet there are some similarities. Could you comment yeah. at all? That's that's a huge question. That? Yeah, anyone who wants to comment on that should feel free. Um, Can I give a funny and small example? Please, yeah. Uh, in Switzerland, we, we lived in Switzerland for a number of years. It's it's not quite the level of getting a, a horse, for sure. <laughs> but if, if you're in the Swiss school system, yeah. when you're 10 or 11, you have to... They, they basically have a huge ceremony at school to give you a calligraphy pen. 
Each student, huh. but you have to prove your handwriting is it's at a certain enough. level, <laughs> and then you get your special pen. And before yeah. that, you're only allowed to use pencil, pencil for everything, and then you get your really? like real ink pen, and that's what you're meant to use for many of that's, the classes. You're never, never allowed to make a mistake after that point. And the teachers <laughs> actually take the pen back from you if your handwriting gets worse. Shame. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a strange. Strange thing, but interesting as far as honoring the skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a real thing. I think they, I mean, people have talked, I mean, I'm not sure of any resources in particular, but, you know, people have talked about the the loss of rites of passage in our Mm -hmm. culture as being a real, really destructive thing Mm -hmm. for, for young people. In other words, there's not so many of the things that would have been kind of markers along the road towards adulthood are just not even a thing anymore. <laughs> I mean, getting your car, getting your driver's license would be a big, a big one in terms of if you have access to a car, um, the freedom that comes with that. Or, but, but you know, I've read <coughs> kind of reflections on the way in which, which is having a car is not. But it does it doesn't signify like the kind of. Uh, freedom that it might have done in the 1950s or 60s or 70s even uh, today mm-hmm. um, because I think on average fewer people are excited to get their license and, and embrace that kind of responsibility and get in a car and drive off and do things um, and people have talked a lot about how part of that is is um, because you're engaging with your friends all the time you know mm-hmm. in your room even though they're not there, you know, there's no there's no sense that I have to like be free and get in a car and drive somewhere to to have social a social life. Mm-hmm. Although I would say like to have a real social life, you do still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I mean, I know lots of lots of people that are more than old enough to drive a car and, and could, but never really want never really wanted to. And rely on their siblings to drive them around places. <laughs> not that the, not that everybody has to have a car, of course not. But but um, there's there's something going on there in terms of the the uh, at least in some cases what I would what I would call the abdication of dominion. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I would rather just rather just coast right here. Thank you very much. Then then um, then take on a new responsibility and challenge, even if it will have lots of positive things that allows me to do. It's it's an unknown. I'd rather just not. Um, uh, yeah, other rites of passage. Um, yeah, they kind yeah. of only have been retained like in religious yeah. spheres. So, yeah. a confirmation or a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah. Like, yeah. And I suppose for a bar mitzvah, I think you have to recite so much of the mm-hmm. Torah. So, that's sort of a skill. That's kind of an academic skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they're. Well, those are those are more like formalized rites of passage, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say that there are probably like some that are like more sort of informalized rites of passage that you wouldn't think to call rites of passage, but yeah. still kind of function in that way. Yeah. Can you? Can, can you? Well, do you have ideas? I mean, I know I know people were laughing at like getting a cell phone, but yeah. like I would say that is like in some like maybe not now. I don't know like what age kids are on average getting a cell phone now, but like. 
when I turned 16, it was like, you can get a cell phone, or like, we're gonna give you a cell phone now. And it's like, yeah. okay, now there is like this thing that's opened up, mm-hmm. and like, you can now communicate with the outside world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so in a way, that's like a modern rite of passage. Yeah. Um, whether that's good or bad, or, you know, we can talk about that too. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I think things like, like getting your license or, you know, things like that, like, getting your license is a rite of passage, like, yeah. regardless of whether you have a car or not, but, like, that mm-hmm. is, in a way, a rite of passage. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, in a lot of ways, it is kind of getting access to something bigger. Like, yeah. going to college is a rite of passage, yeah. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, getting your first job or your yeah. first paycheck is a rite of passage. Right. So, yeah. I mean, these are all sort of, like, cultural, in a lot of ways, those are, like, more technological or economic Rights mm-hmm. of passage rather than like religious or like social rights of passage, mm-hmm. but, but that's just um, significant. I mean, yeah, 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 for sure. Interesting yeah. conversation we've had sometimes on the breeze. Just what does it mean to be an adult? Like, mm-hmm. what does adulthood mean yeah. to all of you? What is it? What? What do you? What do you have to have in place to be an adult? <laughs> <laughs> And is the concept attractive? <laughs> or even, um, like, all the articles written about, like, hashtag adulting. Like, yeah, maybe yeah. there's, like, some nostalgia for, like, skills you actually haven't developed until you're, like, early 20s or yeah. 20s. And yeah. And it's like, oh, no, now I don't know how to, like, pay my bills or whatever right. it is yeah. that you have figured out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's the thing with a cell phone, too. It's not just, like, getting a phone. It's, like, when do you get to the age where you pay for your phone <laughs> as well? When mm-hmm. you're yeah. responsible for your yeah. data plan... Yeah, and all of that because it does. I'm not, and no shame on anyone, you know, but <laughs> yeah, like we for a while were, you know, there's no Wi-Fi in the house here, and wanting to limit use. But more and more people come at very young age; they don't have a job, and they have this massive data plan, so they can just watch Netflix anytime, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't know, there's a part of me where it, maybe it is sort of a, a a step, some sort of acknowledgement of coming older, but it mm-hmm. still prolongs. There's no responsibility to yeah. mm-hmm. it. And, no, and, that, and that's the yeah. thing that I think was, is the redemptive thing about about rites of passage is that it's it's it comes with a new respect and status and freedoms, but it's always with responsibilities that you've taken on in order to in order to stand in that place. Mm-hmm. Certainly in, in Farmer Boy, it's like okay. You were able to do this now, mm-hmm. so you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one example, real quick, is this guy. Uh, I knew a guy. He actually used to work here. I hope, I hope I'm getting the story right. Uh, unbelievably gifted guy could fix his car and do anything uh, he put his mind to. In any case, when he was young, I think it was like a teenager. He had an older brother, and his dad dismantled this old Volvo. I mean, I, I wasn't there. I don't know how dismantled it was, but like broke it down significantly spread it all out on the lawn and told his kids they had to drive it off the lawn. And they did. <laughs> they, they figured out how to, and, and I'm sure he was there to help them, but they, and I think they'd already done some mechanical work before, um, but they basically reassembled the whole car and drove it off. And I'm not sure whether it was like, okay, now you have this car. That would be awesome. <laughs> I'm not sure that was it. Yeah. Anna, we can There's a question from Andrew Chapman in Alaska. No way! Yeah, he said he really enjoyed the lecture. Oh. He listened while doing a bit of creating, in this case, trimming out some doors. <laughs> you talked about the resurgence of analog 
Do you think we are also entering a modern resurgence of labor slash trades slash craftsmanship? Mm -hmm. I think it depends who you talk to. <laughs> it depends where you are. I think I think there's there's there are um, I'm not sure whether there's a resurgence that's 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 widespread, but there's definitely pockets of resurgence among people who really value that and 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 in some place depending where you are in the country, there's some places where that's that's economically viable. Um, yeah, to do for work. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking of um, for a long, you know, for a long time, to be a furniture maker and to make nice handmade furniture was just synonymous with starving. Um, because who's going to spend um, that amount of money uh, for something that's that's handmade, given the time and the energy you put into it, and you, you have to charge an outrageous amount for nice handmade furniture, right? And uh, there's this um, really interesting book by. Uh, a guy named Peter Korn, Why We Make Things and Why It Matters, and it's all about him as a furniture maker, his obsession with making furniture, and just talks a bit about the um, how unrealistic economically it is to do that. But but there are, and, and I'm thankful I've seen some of this among you know among Christian in Christian communities, a, a commitment to support people who are making good things, <laughs> uh, both lo locally but also. Um, uh, certainly, there's aspects of that within um, farming and food. Just trying to being much more intentional about what we what we buy and trying to support people who we know are really doing something <coughs> um, ethical and good. Um, yeah, I don't, I, other people could probably speak to this more than more than me. But like, there's a there's a good thing about buying something handmade, right? There's, mm -hmm. I think there's there's something that appeals to lots of us. <laughs> But also there's been a huge uptick in attention given to vocational high schools, whereas, yeah. you know, 10 or 15 years, that's where sort of you went if you were a dropout. Mm -hmm. But now there's quite an appeal yeah. for kids to get into mm -hmm. vocational skills schools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's wait lists now. Yeah, they're really good go, schools, yeah. And you yeah. have to go with letters of recommendation. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there is attention both to, I think, the things that I have read, just that the connection between depression mm -hmm. and not working with your hands and the high rate of suicide, mm -hmm. of meaningless work. Mm -hmm. And then the, the connection of people who work with their hands actually are much more happy, they can quantify that in however you want to say happy, but are much more proud of the work that they do because there's a, there's an, a mark of achievement, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I have grown this much, instead of just like sales or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that vocational skill schools mm -hmm. are growing, in, in definitely in New England. I mean, yeah. there's quite a lot of vocational skills schools mm -hmm. that have been given lots of attention. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important too, along those lines, um, just that the fact that there's starting to be more equal opportunity to work with your hands, which is exciting, um, I think, because something that I was thinking about a lot during the lecture and struggling with a little bit is just this sort of cultural connection um, between manual labor and our um, 
enforcement of, of gender roles and, mm-hmm. you know, even in the um, shot class book, all his yeah. pronouns were, yeah, were male. And, yeah. and I mean, understandably, the image that comes to probably all of our minds is, mm-hmm. is, is male when we think of, when we think of manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the example of your grandmother was really, was really cool. Um, but just like I was thinking about like, to what extent is manual labor like a result of necessary gender roles? To what extent does it enforce harmful gender roles? Um, I've seen it to be harmful to men sometimes in that if that's not how you're inclined, you're less mm, masculine, yeah, okay, yeah, you're less um, valuable. Um, you don't like to work in your car, you're somehow less of a man. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Um, but I think on the other side of that, seeing space for women to um, make things, yeah. um, not only in the home, but mm-hmm. as work is really yeah. exciting. Kelly, can I, Kelly, can I invoke your name for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> this is, just for those of you who are not who are not present in the room, our wonderful helper at Kelly uh, is a butcher and researched local farms around here and we were able to go and pick up a hog the other day, which has been on my mind a lot in the last few days. Um, all of our minds, I feel like. Uh, but, but Kelly found a farm that was, that's uh, owned and run by, by women and it's a, it's, it's um, an admirable place in some ways because they actually slaughter the pigs there where where they are grown. So there's you, you avoid the whole sort of traumatic tran, you know transport of the animal to a slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and all that. And uh, Kelly uh, basically butchered this pig and broke it down and, and was gracious enough to allow us to sort of help <laughs> her in that process. Um, and I, I just found it. The, the timing of this leading up to the lecture was really, this lecture was really um, um, a joy to me to see, to see like manual competence <laughs> uh, and um, manual competence that's actually like um, a real, a, a potential real way of life, a good, a good vocation and that so obviously serves and helps people and um, you know, we're, we're, I haven't heard the term whole animal butchery before, but like using every aspect of this animal, like to, to, um, throwing away very, very little. It's, it's been really, really eye-opening and wonderful. So that, that's, this has been a nice example of, of both the importance of manual competence, but also, um, a typical gender role being upset here, you know, because, I mean, you, Kelly, I'm sorry, I'm talking for you, Kelly. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, not not a, an ordinary thing for a woman to work in a butcher shop, um, but we've benefited from it a lot. So that's been really, really a fun thing in the last few days. And that's going to be really yummy. <laughs> yeah, but your uh, description of your grandparents—that was that's my parents. Oh, really? Yeah, my yeah. my dad. He doesn't know how to work the remote, you know. <laughs> but my mom, she could fix anything. Yeah. She worked with wood. She, yeah, if something was broken, she could figure it away mm-hmm. to fix it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, going back to Andrew's question, mm-hmm. I want. I think this is because I, I remember reading this book. I don't know if I finished it. The one shot glass, mm-hmm. soul crap. I quoted and, most of it tonight, so you've now you can say you finished it. You get a refresher, but I think he was talking about, and we've kind of alluded to it tonight, but 
Um, a lot of jobs are getting outsourced. Yeah. In, information kind of jobs, and a lot of jobs are going to be replaced with automation. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of jobs that just can't. Yeah. Can't be outsourced or replaced, and that, those are the trades. Yeah. Like you can't exactly. outsource a plumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, a machine can't come in and mm-hmm. fix that mm-hmm. for you. Um, so I just think I wonder if that's going to cause mm-hmm. more people to go mm-hmm. there, and the mm-hmm. trade schools are going to yeah. be more desirable because it's like. Well, I know job security there's is gonna there, be work. and there's yeah. always going to be that as the population goes up. Yeah. Um, he talks about that a fair amount of it. You know, yeah, I remember him saying, like, even if you don't, even if, say, you're never going to be a plumber, well, you know what? It could be good. <laughs> like, if that's not going to be the, the job you want for the rest of your life, yep. it's good to have a skill like that in case times get tough yep. or you need a part-time job on the yep. side. Or, and I just thought, oh, man, that's... That's good advice, I think, yeah. for young people to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He said he has some cheeky remark in there about, I forget the exact wording, but like you can buy lots of, of things from China, but when your motorcycle breaks down, the Chinese can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> <they're> in China. <laughs> exactly. What are you going to do? <laughs> like, you, there, there's, uh, and he's just making that same point. Like, there's, there's, there's a lot of work that's impossible to outsource. Yeah. So it never will be, and there's always going to be demand for it, and uh, it makes no sense to sort of denigrate that work as somehow low, low and menial um, at all. Yeah. Yes. Okay, this is kind of like a different viewpoint from it, but mm-hmm. you're talking about art, and yeah. this summer it was like super random how it came about, but I learned that I could actually draw. And I was kind of, like, shocked. And I was like, I have no clue why. And, like, I wanted to hear your perspective because it's kind of been something I've been, like, struggling with to try to understand, okay, why do I now have this random gift? And would you argue, oh, it's something like this where you're doing it with your hands and thus it's, like, combating that kind of trend of technology? Hmm. Or how? what would your perspective be on it? Because it... You're creating something, but it's in a different sense of creating something sure. that people use. It's more sure. like a personal mm-hmm. thing. Well, I guess the easy answer is to say, I don't know uh, how, why and how this came about in your life, because I don't know you. I only met you a few minutes ago. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, but I can, I, can, uh, I can imagine it's... it's um, or just in general, yeah. like why yeah. God gives like gifts like that. That might be... Yeah. Um, he likes them. Because he oh, likes them. <laughs> and I'm like, what's the purpose? <laughs> Maybe he thought you would like it. I do. <laughs> I do, but okay. Well, I mean, it is, it is, um, the thing I like about this whole conversation is it kind of, it levels the playing field in terms of the types of things. We talk about manual competence, the ability to do things with your hand. It can be, it can be plumbing, it can be car mechanics, it can be, in other words, the trades, or crafts, hmm. but it also can be fine art. It's it's all uh, those things are different from each other, but hmm. they all involve some sort of um, ability ability to manip- manipulate things effectively with your hands. Mm-hmm. So, in one sense, learning how to draw is totally manual competence, uh, hmm. although it's not in the same sense that um, learning how to fix a broken appliance is. Hmm. Uh, it has more to do with the imagination and seeing differently, and learning how to see. And translate what you see through your your brain to your hands, and actually produce something that's you know. Mm-hmm. So there's there's um, it's different but alike, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that makes yeah. sense. 
I'd like to talk to you about that more. But I don't <laughs> yeah, Roger. Uh, really fast, Ellie. There's a term for what you were trying to talk about. It's called um, war manual labor. <laughs> and, uh, Did you just make that up? Is that for real? It's the term it's we always use. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ever make an all woman punk band, that'd be really cool if you called it that. But, um, <laughs> going back to it, um, you mentioned like um, partway through the lecture, you're talking about uh, it was a, it was a quote from Soulcraft mm-hmm. about how. Um, so many just like everyday appliances are yeah. made so it's impossible for even if you mm-hmm. wanted to work on yourself, it's yeah, yeah. literally impossible to mm-hmm. yeah. because you can't replace one part or mm-hmm. um, you know the screws like some crazy star shape or something like that. <laughs> and um, so I think that if you know um, having a more hands-on analog approach to you know every aspect of our life that's like to become more normal. Yeah. Um, it might have to become like pretty widespread, like a big demand for like industries to change that because mm-hmm. you know, like I mean, my dad who's been yeah. working on cars forever. Yeah, he says like I can't work on cars made in 2020 because so much yeah. of it is, you know, com- there's so much like computerized yeah. stuff. Yeah, and unless yeah. you're actually in a shop with equipment that's like thousands of dollars yeah. the computers you need to test the computers there yeah the and like you can't yeah. you literally can't do anything yeah so i think that's going to be like it's going to be like a big cultural demand to be like yeah we want to be able to you know do this ourselves yeah uh-huh. it's a wet blanket on the whole the whole um tradition of tinkering uh-huh. like just being able to mess around with your car in the garage it's like he talks about this a lot like this the the, the aesthetic of streamlined it goes along with the magical thinking kind of thing. It's just like you can't see anything of the workings of something, mm-hmm. and it, it's supposed to be just intuitive and, and uh, to respond to your desires. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and he says like if you open the hood of like a modern Mercedes or whatever, there's essentially another hood underneath it. Yeah, um, you can't you can't find you can't see anything in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he gripes about it at one point about you know. In, <laughs> I don't know what he has against Mercedes. <laughs> He's like, like in, in new Mercedes, they don't even have a dipstick. You can't even check the oil in it. You just get a light on your dashboard saying maintenance required, which is just meaning a meaningless statement. Um, and, uh, He's basically, he's basically saying the responsibility for your oil level has been, has been taken away from you and from every, who, whose responsibility is it anymore? Well, like, like it gets, you, <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you have to go to a mechanic and say something's wrong. Yeah, like they're, you setting know? You up, they're setting you up to be incompetent. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. um, I mean, my dad does it because you know he's not about to pay mm-hmm. money to go to a mechanic. So that's yeah. I mean, I joke about that, but it's like a huge. That's a real thing. It's like yeah. that's like yeah. you could be saving yourself so much time and hassle yeah. and you know, money by knowing how to do it yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's like intentional or not or like mm-hmm. it's like you're stopped from doing that. And yeah. so I think unless that's like a wide cultural demand, mm-hmm. it's gonna be really hard for like individuals to be like I you know, know how to fix my car. Yeah. It'll be a bigger and bigger market for old cars. Well yeah. it's also one of the yeah. reasons I think some people get into motorcycles is because there's actually an engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's not covered by a computer panel. I yeah. maybe brand new motorcycles are. I don't know, but <laughs> this is how my dad talks about motorcycles. That it actually you can actually interact with an engine like yeah. you used to be able to see in a car. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people get into them. I mean, yeah. Maybe they enjoy riding a motorcycle too, but mm-hmm. they have access mm-hmm. to what we no longer have access to when it comes to cars. Huh. When yeah. my Boys were really long. I mean, really long, really young. I had Before this, they were um, long, actually. Yeah. I had this longing <laughs> to figure out car engines. Yeah. I don't know why. It was brief. But <laughs> I just thought, this would be so cool. Yeah. I have these relatives who understand engines. I don't understand anything at all about them. So I, I went to my, my granddaddy at the time and... I knew he knew a ton about engines, did a lot of tinkering, and he he basically wouldn't even talk to me about it because he was like, there's no point in you learning mm-hmm. any of this mm-hmm. because it's all computerized now mm-hmm. and it's only going to get more and more computerized. Like you said, there's another hood. Mm-hmm. It's like you open a car hood and there's just, it's a computer. Yeah. You can't even get down to the things that I could teach you about anymore. Yeah. And it was so sad. So depressing, <laughs> you know, like yeah. All this... I mean, what has basically turned into now, you know, people have small engine knowledge, yeah. like motorcycles and other things right. like that, right. you know, lawnmowers and whatnot, yeah. but it was just a really sad moment in realizing mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what has been lost Yeah. yeah, fixing up cars yourself. And it's kind of like what you said about, I think it was in the book, of how uh, technology is making us feel like we're independent, but we're actually depending on it and it mm-hmm. seems like it's like that for all different things mm-hmm. of like deceiving us of like oh you're independent you can drive this car you get access to all these things but then it's like a fake curtain and yeah. actually you said this is a fascinating passage in there one of the things I didn't quote from the book um, mm-hmm. is uh, he's saying autonomy versus agency it's two different huh. things like autonomy is this sort of illusion that we have from our technology that we can go out and just achieve anything and everything is so streamlined and intuitive and we never, it just, you know, you can think something, desire something and have it and, and whatever. There's a sense of autonomy, um, which is not at all the same thing as agency, mm-hmm. which is what he actually is in favor of, which is like actually, uh, knowing how things work and, um, the, the, di- the there's a the sort of a digital shell over the mechanical realities of of our stuff. <laughs> the digital shell makes it all seem intuitive and and, and smooth, and yet um, we don't really understand what's going on. We don't have any, any way of, of of coping when the when the, when the digital fails. Uh, so he's talking about agency, and then a certain kind of autonomy, which is really a, an illusion. Yeah. Digital shell is kind of like a scary image for all of life right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's hope for just, you know, we just have to be open to buying beat up old cars that we can still work on. I don't know. And I mean, like, your faucets still work pretty similarly to what they did, you know, a few decades ago. So it's like, I, mean, I guess the car is just one example. Yeah. But there's plenty yeah. of other stuff you can. There's some things that, that don't change much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. 
There's yeah. also so many things that are like I'll go to my grandmother's house and use her blender, and it's like you know from the fifties, and I'm like, this is so much better at blending things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't made to to break and yeah. after the warranty ran out. Yeah, right. yeah. There's one more comment on Facebook. Okay. Um, someone's just mentioning a a place on Martha's Vineyard. It's a boat shop. Uh, oh. by Gannon and Benjamin, master craftsmen of traditional wooden sailboats. And he's mm. saying just a ton of people come to this shop. It's casually open to the public. And it's a beautiful example of this, you know, skilled work with one's hands. Yes, yeah. awesome. Mm. Oh, I would love to go see it. The, uh, the North Bennett Street mm-hmm. School is a, is a really amazing sort of prestigious school in Boston, which is... is uh, it has very specific programs. It has like a violin making program. It has a cabinetry program, book binding program. Jewelry. You know, and so there's, but it's all very, very specific, high, high end, like excellent training in all these different areas. Uh, and it's, an, it's very inspiring to go. We went on a, on a, uh, like an open house tour of it once. But the <laughs> average age of, the, of their students is like 48. Wow. Yeah, and a lot of yeah, a lot of it's like like business people that are fed up and wanted to learn a learn a, a manual skill. Yeah, actually, one of the guys I know was a lawyer. I knew him through playing Irish music. He was a lawyer for years, and he was like sixty, and he's like, "Screw this!" <laughs> and he went and learned how to make violins, and, wow. and like, and it was you know, amazing. Yeah, but uh, you can see the appeal. Cool. Yes, sir. Um, I have a lot of like scattered thoughts, but one of my, I think one of my concerns is, or I think there's a, a right concern to say like, it's good that there's a resurgence of uh, training for trades, or that like, you want job security, this is the direction you should go, you know. <laughs> but my concern is that we, we, um, we tie the work of our hands to like, let me make sure I can make a paycheck, yeah. you know, yeah. out of this. And even to think like, um, you know, if I if I can make something, mm-hmm. I should sell it, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, may, maybe, yeah. but um, yeah, I think that's... I want the other thing I'm thinking about is you know my my dad is a furniture maker yeah. and has sort of miraculously stayed in business mm-hmm. against all odds for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually all of the California hoops mm-hmm. of you know what is required of small businesses. Yeah that is the greatest threat mm. to his existence, you know? So, like, mm. he's profoundly gifted yeah. in his work. There's definitely people that want to buy yeah. his stuff. But, like, to be able to be in business yeah. is just this whole other thing yeah. that has nothing to do with mm. being competent in right. a yeah. trader skill. Or and the demand for your for what you're making. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, so I don't know, like there's that piece that I'm sort of puzzling over. Mm. Like I don't want to downplay the, the difficulty of that, sure. you know, aspect of it. And and even, you know, like I just wonder how much our um, 
sort of our standard of living gets in the way mm -hmm. of pursuing some of these things mm -hmm. because you know we don't really want a pioneer life mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know I don't think most people want the life of an entrepreneur yeah. you know who or you know maybe somebody in the tech world who's yeah. an entrepreneur mm -hmm. but like an entrepreneur who's yeah trying to small business small business uh, entrepreneur yeah like that kind of um just like the what it what like I, what what I've seen in my family yeah. you know like there weren't vacations there yeah. like work life is work it's, it makes yeah. me think of like the picture you get of a restaurant family sure, yeah. you know it's like you live at the restaurant like yeah. life is the restaurant yeah. and um, and so I wonder too like how. Like, I think that can be a wonderful and beautiful thing, mm -hmm. but I just wonder how much <laughs> we don't want. Yeah. We don't want just that. We want mm -hmm. all of these things, right. you know, um, yeah. which I think, I don't know, <laughs> kind of, the, the other thought I was intrigued by was that we are more interested in potential than achievement, you yeah. know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. we don't want the restaurant life. Yeah. We want to have a little bit of all of these things, yes. <laughs> or I want the freedom. Yeah. To learn how to make violins because yeah. I have the 401k lawyer. Right, I, right, right. right. Um, but anyway, I'm sort of rambling here, but mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, I think my and my main uh, concern is just we should we should uh, explore explore the work of our hands mm -hmm. and put our hands to all sorts of good work, whether or not. We can sell it. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, maybe I'll answer and then respond. But uh, just yeah, there's a lot there that's really interesting and helpful. I think because it's it's a uh, I hear in your comments a reminder of just the 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 danger of romanticizing something. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, mm -hmm. And, and celebrating potential rather than actual. You know. Yeah. You know. There's. Um, it's easy for people to, to romanticize so th this kind of work who don't have to depend on this kind of work to mm -hmm. actually survive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's certainly a danger uh, and something to just be very aware of. Um, but, yeah. I think I'm thinking of parallels in the humanities too, sure. where it's like you don't major in English because you think you're going to make money on it, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's so many worthy pursuits. <laughs> so many That's worthy pursuits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. uh, I'm sort of chasing some of this down, yeah. down the path of, like, vocational discernment, sure. I guess. And, you know, yeah, he has some good thoughts. I mean, uh, he, meaning Matthew Crawford, has some, mm -hmm. has some interesting thoughts on... Because you have the idea of um, you know working for a paycheck, there, there's in, intrinsic and extrinsic rewards for like for for, yeah. for work, and he talked he talked about you know with the advent of I mean obviously the work has always to some degree for some people been drudgery ever since the fall you know, <laughs> but um, he talks about this idea of talking of of, of our paycheck as compensation yeah. for mm -hmm. for the work you're doing. Is just a very sort of a depressing idea. Like it's truly compensation when the work itself. There's no intrinsic joy mm, yeah. to doing the work itself. It's mm. just like oh my gosh, 
but they still get paid on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's toxic and sad and, and the position that many, many, maybe most people are in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so we don't want to, don't want to, uh, forget that. Um, but at the same time, you don't have to say that if I'm getting paid for this, therefore there's no intrinsic value to this because you can, you can, you can mm-hmm. certainly enjoy and find fulfillment out of something you're making, even though you're getting paid for it. Um, uh, although, you know, you hear, you know, you hear stories of like hobbies that turn into jobs and, and people kind of, it's <laughs> just not as fun anymore. Um, but, uh, the, I don't think the two are, you know, intrinsically at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. I think it could be, I mean, I assume your, I mean, I assume your dad is an example of that. I mean, he, uh, he obviously makes furniture in order to support his family and to, to have his home and, but he wouldn't do it if he didn't love making furniture. <laughs> and uh, and there's, there's some intrinsic reward to that mm-hmm. that's not just the money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and that the, there's a way of life yeah. that is provided that isn't just financial, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh, I just, uh, yeah, a couple sort of scattered thoughts or comments, but um, yeah, piggybacking off of of your getting to know your dad over the years, you know, one of the things that I think sometimes draws people into manual work, and whether that's any sort of creative act with their hands, or we mentioned earlier farming and stuff, is is becoming aware of what we've done to the earth, and on this like massive scale, mm-hmm. and how the industrial revolution is just you know, like so much pollution and. Mm-hmm. But one of your dad's biggest burdens uh, has been environmental regulations because mm. they change so fast and so rapidly huh. that some of the equipment he has or some of the stains he uses on furniture, mm. he will get fined. Like, he'll buy it, and then he can't even finish using it mm. before it's now longer. It's, like, not up to code. To it's, it's, like, yeah. illegal to use. Yeah. And it's made him quite... Yeah cynical, if not outright antagonistic, to the environment, yeah. <laughs> sort of environmental movement, because yeah. it's sinking his, it's, it's, it's been very difficult for him. Oh. And, um, sad. Yeah. And then I, I'm just like, he's a one-man band. Yeah, good thing at odds with each other. Um, <laughs> it's not like pollution is going into a river somewhere. Like, yeah. that, like that's what's lamentable. I yeah. Because this legislation is designed to, yeah. to rein in, like, big industry. Yeah. And he's, like, this yeah. 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 small-time furniture maker getting slammed. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It just even sort of parallel to that, like, I, there, you know, like, our, including my, like, my need for, for, um, Gasoline and our cultural's need for that, which is driven by our by cars, has, mm-hmm. has not been a good thing. It's led our country into wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's caused untold like problems. And mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't disagree with anything that's been said. But I, there is to me something ex- exciting about more energy efficient mm-hmm. uh, technologies that come via. Green under like yeah. <laughs> underneath all those things, and I, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that Elon Musk, and Tesla are really driven by, you know, uh, the noble, uh, <laughs> the nobleness that they sometimes wear. But you know, I do think they're 
are some potential exciting things moving in like the digital or uh, computers can allow. I don't mm-hmm. think that is characteristic or necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most large technology firms are fairly duplicitous about, you know, mm-hmm. fairly two-faced about all of this stuff sure. and create an outrageous amount of waste. But I just wonder mm-hmm. if um, there could be some good or... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should all just go back to trains. I feel like trains are where it's at. So you're talking, you're, so you're talking about the, con- the concern for for just decreasing fossil fuel usage and, and, and sort of the car industry turning more and more towards electric cars. Um, good thing for the environment, and yet for, for this whole question that we were talking about earlier, yeah, about learning, learning how to work yeah. with your car, those, yeah. those seem to be at odds, yeah. yeah. Or, or would require such, would require, you know, a, a degree. Yeah. To, to be able to do anything to it. I don't really, I'm just, it yeah. was just thoughts, That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. spinning off of yeah. listening to your dad's frustrations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And not like California. Kelly. I think that's like, like when I was talking to all the farmers I talked to last year, my masters, they, like, I, I was asking a lot of them about like, okay, well how do you feel about all of the environmental regulations that are going on? Mm. And they, they were like, yeah, well, you know, we think this is like, okay, for the most part, the farmers were like, we're farmers. We want the earth to, like, be living. Otherwise, Survive. we wouldn't have a livelihood. Right? <laughs> right. Our, our problem is when there's, like, a disconnect between, like, our way of life and, like, the people in the city who are making the laws yeah. who don't, who've never worked with their hands in their entire yeah. life. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, there is, are wonderful things like the, like, that are saving, that that are trying to, like, work with the environment mm-hmm. and work with technology, and we need that because we can't go back yeah. because we're, we aren't like we used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the people who are still doing those practical hands-on jobs, um, there, there needs to be this, like, whether it's like rural and urban working together or hands mm-hmm. and brain working together. Mm-hmm. Like we are like a disconnected yeah. we are a whole body. Incoherent. Yeah. yeah. Um and so I think that that's where we get in trouble mm-hmm. is and I mean I tend to romanticize. Like I would love to go back to like an agrarian mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. But it, it, that wouldn't be perfect at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the other little house books, this is the one where every there's like always enough to eat, and it's yeah. not Laura's own life. Yeah, yeah. She often they're they're really living on the edge a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very. I mean, just yeah. Almanzo's story growing up is 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 on an established, very prosperous farm, and his dad is a successful farmer and has people working for him. Whereas Laura's experience is a dad that wants to go somewhere new every couple of years, so they're just like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah. yeah, and they're really the, the long winter is like the yeah. pretty pretty um, terrifying story. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. Yeah, the, the long winter, reading the long winter doesn't allow you to romanticize of the pioneer. Pioneer, <laughs> it's good. It takes the wind out of your sails. <laughs> Anybody else? Maybe we'll wrap it up. Thank you.
Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Good. Thanks for working on the bugs over the last few lectures, guys. Yeah. 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 Ye